Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on Think Humanities, two of Kentucky's brightest thinkers will share their thoughts about the times we're living in, Salas House and Morris Manning. Salas House is the nationally best-selling author of six novels, Clay's Quilt, The Parchment of Leaves, The Cold Tattoo, Eli the Good, and Same Son Here, and, of course, Southernmost, published in 2018, as well as a book of creative nonfiction, Something's Rising, co-authored with Jason Howard, and three plays, The Hurting Part, This Is My Heart for You, and In These Fields with Sam Gleaves. His work frequently appears in the New York Times and Salon. He recently, just at the first of this uh, month, uh, published a piece in The Atlantic on the pandemic. His uh, writing has appeared in Time, A Garden and Gun, Oxford America, as well as anthologies such as Best Food Writing in 2015. Silas serves on the fiction faculty at the Spalding School of Creative Writing and as uh, NEH Chair at Berea College. He's received many awards and honors, including an E.B. White Award, the Lee Smith Award, and Southernmost, his novel, was a finalist for the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction and appeared on several of the best of 2018 lists, uh, including uh, Southern Living and Garden and Gun, among others. The distinguished Kentucky poet Morris Manning has published five books of poetry, including The Common Man, which was one of three finalists for the 2011 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. His first collection, Lawrence Booth's Book of Visions, was selected for the 2000 Yale Series of Younger Poets. He has had works uh, in publications including The New Yorker, Washington Square, The Southern Review, Poetry, Shenandoah, and The Virginia Quarterly Review. Morris was born and raised in Kentucky and often writes about the land and culture of his home. A Companion of Owls is a collection of poems in the voice of frontiersman Daniel Boone, replete with details of the world of Daniel Boone. Bucolics, in the tradition of pastoral poetry, is a collection of untitled poems about the natural world addressed to a figure referred to as Boss. Morris has taught at DePaul University and Indiana University is on the faculty uh, at the MFA program at Warren Wilson College and the Swanee Writing Conference. He is a professor of English at Transylvania University. And it's such an honor during this strange, scary time to have them on our Think Humanities podcast. And gentlemen, uh, let me uh, begin this way. I I just read uh, a David Brooks quote, uh, New York columnist David Brooks, that the COVID-19 virus is hitting us at, quote, exactly the spots where we are the weakest, our social connections. Yet in the last few weeks, we're seeing a new energy coming into the world. People are becoming neighbors again. Acts of kindness are abundant. The support of the medical community and first responders is so gratifying. So let's begin there. And uh, uh, Silas, you, in your Atlantic piece uh, that I've just read, uh, address some of those same, thing, same things that uh, David Brooks is talking about. 
Yeah, I think that um, that's that's one of the major things I've been thinking about is just the way this has changed community and um, and really the positive aspects of it, like you were saying, have been really surprising. I mean, it is a, uh, a frightening time. You know, the uncertainty is is frustrating, um, et cetera. But I have loved um, the quiet and the stillness of it. And I have, uh, I've loved that there's more of that in the world, you know. Um, and and our neighborhood is, has changed, like you were saying, you know, now so many people are outside. Uh, so many more. Um, our, our neighbor practices her cello out on the screen porch now, you know, just to get out of the house and we get to hear her. Um, People are out walking everywhere and children are out playing in the yards. There's some teenagers that live across from us who get out and dance on the porch in the evenings, you know, cause they're, they're just all having cabin fever. And so in a way it's like my whole way of life of being quiet and being still walking, reading, all those things are what a lot of people are doing now. Whereas used to, you know, uh, I felt like the real outsider in, in doing those things. Morris, is it a um, a time to think more deeply about life? Oh, yes. Um, I don't know if, if this may well be coincidence, but um, just before we kind of had to separate ourselves and, and, and many of our activities got curtailed, I was... Um, thumbing through a genealogy book in the Boyle County Public Library, which is just up the road from us. And I was looking at a book called Pioneer Families of Clay County, Kentucky. That happens to be where many of my dad's folks are from. And I was going through it, uh, seeing my grandmother's ancestors' names and there are children's names and, and just generation after generation kind of laid out very plainly um, with very little detail. And I, uh, it just prompted me to think very um, profoundly uh, about ancestry, about our people who we come from. And of course, that's something that can be considered in broad terms. Uh, but I, I, have, I have felt it to be a great comfort to realize uh, we all have ancestors. We all have earlier generations who, imperfect as they must have been, they made our present possible in some way, whether they intended it or not. I, I just, I've, I've felt uh, the idea of a kind of legacy or inherit inheritance that is just part of the human experience. And for me, it's also part of the natural experience. You see in, in nature, how, one tree 
in one season may produce so many acorns or so many hickory nuts. And then the next season, one of those sprouts into another young tree. And then that tree becomes mature and produces seeds that produce other trees. And so that just the whole sense of um, a, a kind of complete connectedness uh, is something that I've been thinking of the, these last few weeks. And, and as dire and, and uh, unsettling as things are right now for many people, um, our, I completely agree with Silas. Things are happening that are always reminding us how connected we are. And that's a, that's a real positive. I would also uh, add to that, that no matter what happens uh, today or next week or in six months with the pandemic, what you described will go on. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and, just as Silas said, teenagers across the street come out and dance on the front porch. They're going to keep doing that. And people are going to find ways um, to enjoy ourselves no matter what. We're, we're going to make music. We're going to sing. We're going to dance. We're going to pick flowers. We're going to plant our gardens. We're going to keep going. And that's that's just... I don't, I don't think, uh, our, that that's our spirit, you know, that's, that's the human spirit and we're keeping that. And that's, that's makes me very glad. Silas, uh, you, uh, commented uh, again in the Atlantic piece about not being able to hug your, your mama, mm-hmm. and see your children. And if there's anything about this time, for me, it's it's also reflected in in those thoughts too. That sure we're working through this and we're going through our daily activities, but to think that you can't have that uh, familial uh, closeness that that you did at one time, at least not now. How do you? Um, do you, do you look forward to that time when when uh, this is over and um, those acts of kindness and love are, are are abundant once again? Yeah, I keep saying how sweet the hugs and the reunions are going to be when this is all over. I mean, you know, to to imagine us all being together again—it's just such a moving thing, you know. And I I don't think that we ever just we never had a reason to think about it that profoundly before. You know, um, I, the hardest thing for me has definitely been not being able to be with my, see my children and my parents. I mean, they all live within an hour of me. And so used to, I could just, you know, if I was missing them badly, I could jump in my car and I could go see them and I could give them a big hug and et cetera. And just like I say in the Atlantic piece, you know, I'm 48, I'm 48 years old and my mother is uh, 76. And so those uh, kisses on the cheek from your mother become more and more precious the older you get, you know. Um, I think the other thing that has been uh, upsetting for me 
has has been uh, witnessing so many people being irresponsible and putting people's lives in danger. Like my parents, they put people like my parents in 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 danger by the refusal to stay home, the refusal to stop uh, stop their you know normal lives. I think you know as our governor so beautifully says every day, it's our patriotic duty to self-quarantine and to, you know, we're protecting each other by not being together. And I know some really people that I consider very intelligent and conscientious who I know are, are going over and seeing their elderly parents and, you know, giving them hugs and things like that. And it, it upsets me. Um, it makes me think about, you know, how my grandfather uh, was sent off to war and my father was sent off to war and and <laughs> yet people can't just stay home and be still. You know, it, it just it, that part has really driven me nuts. Morris, you said that uh, you've been using um, some of your time uh, in the garden and outside and maybe some time that you wouldn't uh, uh, normally have in the spring with uh, a teaching schedule and, and that sort of thing. So t- tell me a little bit about what, uh, what you've been doing. Well, um, we, we live on a small farm and always have a uh, several big gardens every year. And usually I'm scrambling, uh, because I'm trying to juggle outdoor chores with my teaching and, and my students at Transylvania. Um, but because I'm not traveling and, and are staying at home, I've, uh, just earlier this week, I got everything tilled and, uh, we planted a bunch of kale and collard greens two days ago. And I've developed this little system of, uh, I call it planting shade. I've got these uh, masonry panels that I've attached to rebar that I put in the ground and um, I grow pole beans on them. And I put the panels on two sides of our back patio. So once the beans come on and they get 10 feet tall, we've got shade. Uh, and then it's edible shade uh, eventually. So that's, and we've got, uh, a four and a half year old, um, and involving her in these little chores is just a joy. She's, she's at the right age to appreciate everything and, and see it all as an adventure. And that's what, what we're trying to do. Another uh, quote from, um, from somebody from long ago, Homer, um, I found. Uh, according to Homer, there are three types of strangers that we're always glad to see at our door. The physician, the carpenter, and the storyteller. So to you, um, as uh, writers, as storytellers, um, how valuable have stories been to you through this and how valuable will these stories be in the future? Morris? Um, well, I was it's kind of eerie, Bill, that you asked this question because I was thinking just yesterday 
um, how important story is um, and always has been. It's, it is, you know, one of the things that distinguishes us as human beings. We tell each other stories. And um, that Silas and I have talked about this ourselves many times through the years that um, our earliest experiences with story came from our relatives, from grandparents and elders in our families. And um, this, this is uh, something that I've only recently uh, realized uh, and been able to articulate, but in, in my experience growing up, the family stories were the literature. Uh, I, I wasn't, uh, I, I, I certainly read books, but I had no idea, you know, what the, what the classic literature was and that sort of thing. And, and, um, it was only in, in my adult years that I understood that there are works of literature that everyone ought to read and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the stories that I had learned from my grandmothers and great grandmothers and uh, other elders um, functioned like seeds in my imagination. And um, it, it, it made my, at least my interior life as a youngster, uh, a richly literary one, even though it was an oral oral literature. Um, and to this day, I, if someone is around and they're telling a story, I pay extra attention. I just, it's just, I, it's a, it's an instinct. It's, it's a, it's a real, uh, it's a joy to, to hear someone telling a story and it's not even the content of the story but the pleasure the storyteller takes in telling the story. Silas? Well, I just think that storytelling is the foundation of community. You know, I mean, if you think about <clears throat> the way we get to know each other is by telling stories to each other. The way you get to know your neighbor or, you know, a friend or, or whatever is, is when you learn some of their story, when they share something with you. I saw somebody uh, post the other day saying that, you know, the next time that, that you think it's okay to cut uh, arts funding, think about the way the arts have carried you through this quarantine, you know, whether it be books or music or um, film or, or whatever form of storytelling you consume. Um, I think that people are thinking about that in a new way and thinking about um, how that is uh, real sustenance to them in a hard time. And I, I grew up the same way like Morris, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, we the TV was on and all that in our house, but everything stopped when somebody told a story. And there was a lot of storytelling that took place in my community and in my family. And I feel so grateful for that. And so I'm, I'm hope 
I hope that that's happening in more homes during this time when you, when, you know, people can only take so much television and uh, dancing on the porch and they have to come together and, and talk to each other. What, what act of kindness has maybe touched you Silas more than, more than anything else that, uh, or at least on parallel with dancing on the porch? <laughs> well, this may be a strange thing to mention, but I was walking down the street the other day and a neighbor of mine had put a big basket full of toilet paper out at the end of their sidewalk and had hung it from their fence. And it just had a little sign on there. So I protest against hoarding, take what you want. And so I just, I just thought that was such a moving act of kindness, you know, um, and also a real statement. Um, and so I loved, I loved that. And I, I've seen lots of, uh, of similar things. You know, I, I live in Lexington now. And one thing that people here have, the people I know have been really proactive in doing is trying to keep our locally owned restaurants afloat during all this. And so, you know, we, we at least once a week get takeout from a locally owned restaurant and have made sure that we only go to locally owned businesses as much as we can. I mean, I feel like uh, these businesses like Kroger and, um, you know, uh, major uh, chain restaurants and things like that, that they will be okay, but it's the real local restaurants we have to worry about. Um, And I just think things like that are, are acts of social justice to, come together and support each other as much as we can. Morris, what are your reflections? Well, we have, um, we have a neighbor, uh, who's about a mile and a half from us and he is mostly retired now, but he made his way in the world, uh, the last few years making motorcycle suits for, for people who race motorcycles and, and so he's got um, a an industrial scale sewing machine in his shop. He came over three or four days ago and very carefully presented us with masks that he had made for our whole family. Hmm. Uh, he just showed up. He didn't call us. He just showed up. Here I am. Here's three masks for y'all. And he said, do you know anyone else who needs a mask? And we mentioned another neighbor down the road, an older man who's certainly, uh, you know, vulnerable at this time. So he went on down the road and gave that man uh, a mask. And just the the fact that, that our, our neighbor um, took it upon himself, I'm just doing this. I'm going to go all around and give give out masks to people I know. That that's uh, that's going to stay with me through all this for sure. Has um, has this episode in our lives? Uh, do you uh, take up the pen and um, and write some original work about this, Marsh? You're you're letting me know that you've you've done that, and I'm, I'm sure Silas, you you can comment on that too. But uh, if you would, would you share something that you've done and how you came about doing it? Did, did internally were you were you forced to put these words down, Morris, or um, as a poet, 
did it strike you in the middle of the night or out there in the garden? Uh, how did it happen? I don't, um, I don't feel that I've been forced by these circumstances to, to write in a particular way. I think sort of what Silas was saying earlier as a, as a sort of matter of social justice, um, a particular response uh, can be an indirect commentary on our circumstances. Um, and that's typically how I, how I respond to uh, disturbing situations. I, I, rather than directly claim something is awry or out of kilter, I, my tendency is to present something that is the opposite of that. Um, and I was thinking the other day that I'm going to read a recent poem. Probably it's three days old. And I was recalling my great, great aunt, Clara Birchall, who lived in Clay County all of her life. And one day I was visiting her and she said that she and her husband planted trees before they built their house. Um, and it was, this would have been a hundred years ago or so. And they did, she said, we didn't have any money, but they had this little plot of land and they knew eventually they would want to build a house and that having trees and shade would, would be important to them eventually. And so they went out and planted the trees first. And I've, I've found that to be just a profound kind of, kind of wisdom. And so and her husband's name was Gib. G-I-B. So this is a poem called Two Hats. Gib Birchall, late tiller of God's green patch, just what rattled your mind and caused you to plant that row of crabapple trees on the bench? Did you fancy yourself a painter whose painting would be long in the making, though never come complete? And of the painting, even a loony can see it's never the same because you figured it to be alive. Your woman told me long ago you planted the trees before you built the house to get a jump on the shade. He thought he'd get a jump on the shade, is how she put it. Now his head was big enough to wear two hats, and every now and then he did. He'd wear a country hat and a hat for town because he said a fix a man discovers in this world is having to ramble through it so he never knows where he's going to be. That used to tickle me, she said, but he put the country hat on first. Gib always knew which way was home. So now, Gib Birchall, you know your woman had such regard for the trees you thought to plant. She told me the story and added, your head was big enough to wear two hats. And that gave me a sprig of what you kept inside it. A tale of trees and two hats and an old man's wisdom. Not mean things to leave behind, Gib Birchall. Not in the least. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, Silas, um, 
What what have uh, what have you thought about? What have you put down uh, other than your piece in the Atlantic? Uh, I'm sure there are other things. Tell us a little bit about what's uh, what's been uh, in your life the last few days, last few weeks. Well, in January, I finished my most recent novel, and strangely enough, it's it's set in the aftermath of a fictional pandemic, and so. I have been caught up in schoolwork ever since then, and we are still we are doing distance learning, teaching. I, I work at Berea College, uh, but I do have more time during my day since you know I'm not going into the classroom. So I've been spending a lot of my day revising that novel. Um, but I thought I would just read you the last paragraph of my Atlantic piece. Um, I have written a couple of pieces for them recently. Um, And this one, uh, as you referenced earlier, is all about community during the time of uh, the pandemic. We have a new way of life now, and I suppose this is community too. This not being together is how we help one another. Throughout the world, people are finding ways to keep community alive until this is over. Nurses and doctors in Iran danced in full scrubs to lift the spirits of their patients. A violinist in Louisville played outside a nursing home for residents to listen at the windows. In Florence, Italy, the opera singer Maurizio Marcini serenaded his neighborhood with Nessum Dorma. New Yorkers recently leaned from their apartments to beat cooking pots, yell, and applaud health professionals. And I've also seen it in the actions of our neighbor, who told me that she is singing lullabies to her grandson via FaceTime since she can't see him in person. All over the world, people are stepping forward with their guitars, their accordions, their trumpets, their voices. Instead of embracing, for now, we'll sing. Well, that's beautiful, too. Of course it is. Um, we only have just a couple of minutes left. And, and uh, speaking of, uh, of music, and uh, I've thought during this time that we, we needed a, an anthem. We needed a national anthem. Um, uh, Silas, you mentioned that uh, uh, arm in arm uh, with people singing "Let It Be" uh, uh, was was meaningful to you at some point. I, for some reason, and there is a little story that I don't have time to tell you about. I've been listening to Peter Paul and Mary, and um, gosh, uh, all of their uh, catalog of, of wonderful songs about social justice and protest, and it's been very meaningful to me. Uh, Silas, what have you been listening to? Um, the day after he passed, uh, the governor had my old Kentucky home played, being sung by John Prine. And so for me, that was like the moment when I just, you know, I lost it. And I think mm. that it was a real release for a lot of us, for all those things to come together. So uh, we've been playing John Prine and singing John Prine every day, you know, playing his songs ourselves. So that's been a real comfort. I've been uh, listening to John Prine, too. Um, but I've also, uh, prior to, especially listening to John Prine since we learned of his passing, but, uh, prior to that, I've been listening to a Kentucky singer songwriter, Tom T. Hall, Mm, uh, one of my favorites. And, and I especially like his song, old dogs and children and watermelon wine. Yeah. It's, It's just, uh, so uh such a comfort and it's the given 
from the perspective of an older man uh, sharing something with the younger uh, the younger narrator of the song. So it's just what we've been talking about. It's it's a it's a storytelling song for sure, um, and it boils the important things of life down to the really basic, commonly shared things. Gentlemen, um, it, it's been a gift um, for me to listen to you talk about and 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 learn from you today and. Um, I'm sure that all of our listeners uh, feel the same. I want to wish you the best, uh, uh, safe, and uh, and your happiness through all of this. And uh, as we've all said, when we get on the other side of, of the pandemic, uh, I, I will uh, look forward to seeing you in person. Thank you so much for being our guest on Think Humanities. Thank, Thank you, Bill. Be well. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.